So amped to be here. So thankful to see all of your wonderful, shining, smiling faces on a beautiful summer morning. Can we hear it for summer, right? Everybody enjoying their summer? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I liked most about summer when I was younger, when I would, like, after I had left my parents' house, is that I would go home for the summer. You know, a lot of people visit relatives over the summer, and you go home and your parents are probably renting out your room on Airbnb now, but they, like, they graciously let you stay in it when you go home, right? Oh, it's so nice of them. So, imagine this. Imagine you go home to the house that used to be yours, and you are scrolling through Instagram in the morning after you wake up and you smell breakfast on and it's really, really great. And as you scroll through Instagram, just thinking about how great life is and everything, you hear this sound. So you're horrified, right? That just brings back so many traumatic memories for me. And then you run into the next room and you're like, it can't be, it can't be. And then you see your mom and dad on the computer and it looks like this. And you're like, no, what are you doing, right? Okay, for those of you who are too young, this is how we used to get on the internet every single time, okay? every time we had to hear that noise, all right? So this is what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about connections, okay? The importance of how we connect, what we are connecting to, and why on earth anyone would try to connect using a method that is outdated or obsolete. And specifically, we're talking about how we connect to God. So before we get into it, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here, for everybody here who is visiting this morning. I pray that you would meet us in a very distinct way for each of us who have come to hear from you. I pray that we would, in fact, connect with you this morning. Lord, that is your desire to connect with us, and you created us for that relationship. And so I pray that we would understand who you are and what you want to do this morning in a way that changes us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the book of Hebrews as a church, and we have been for a few months now. And what we are calling the author of this book of Hebrews, who is anonymous, is the stranger. And we're not calling him that to be cute or trendy. We're calling him that because he really is a stranger. He is this anonymous guy who is a pastor of this church of people in the early first century who were all Jewish followers of Jesus who were tempted to turn back and to forget what they know about Jesus and who he is and to return to what is more comfortable for them. So the author has been laying out a masterful argument for the superiority of Jesus, that he is better than all of these biblical characters and roles that these people revered. And yet because of this persecution that they're facing and the difficulty in their lives, they're, attempted, they're tempted to retreat to what feels safe. 
So the author is pulling out all the stops and using all the tools in his interpretive tool belt to urge them to press on. And in this most recent section that we've been reading for the past several weeks, he's described Jesus as our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And Pastor Casey did a great job a few weeks ago of giving us some important background information about what is a priest? Why are we even talking about priests and why we should care? And if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to that talk from a few weeks ago. He described priests as these bridge builders whose responsibility it was to connect us to God. And they made sure that everybody was prepared to encounter God in the ways that God had prescribed. And the high priest, who was this chief bridge builder, had the responsibility of directly mediating God's presence to everyone. They were the people's connection to God. But what's important to understand for us this morning is that this idea of priest is actually not unique to Israel or even to the Bible. Every ancient culture had priests and every society throughout history has had some version of priests and priesthood, even if we didn't call it that. That's because humans have always felt and expressed this deep need to connect to the transcendent, to be wrapped up in something much larger and more vast than ourselves. It is, it's innate to who we are. So no matter how you know, modern we become, no matter how much people try to insist that this is just superstition or just a religious notion that's kind of dying off as we progress as a culture, it has remained fundamental to what it means to be a person, this desire for transcendence. And one philosopher has explained it this way. He says, 500 and more years after science began to chip away at many of the foundations of Christianity and the other major faiths, there is still an awkwardness or a blindness or an unsufficiency, a mystery in regard to the relationship between religion and the secular world. We cannot escape the search for transcendence. And that as a result, many people feel something is missing. This something is a desire that we have all felt, but only some have acknowledged and admitted it to ourselves. And what we're gonna see today is that one of the keys to understanding this connection is a mysterious biblical figure named Melchizedek, okay? Melchizedek, I know you've been all like dying to get to this point, right? Those of you who are in our Bible plan or are reading this every week, you're like, what on earth are we gonna talk about today? Uh, maybe some of you could care less, and I would totally understand that as well because you don't know Melchizedek from like Methuselah or whatever. But uh, we've actually, a couple weeks ago, been clued in on this guy, Melchizedek, because the stranger, the author, has mentioned him about three or four times now. But here in chapter seven of Hebrews, he gives us a full treatment about why this guy is so important. And it's actually a subject that the author has been wanting to talk about, but he felt he had to address several other things because of the immaturity of his audience. Look at this passage from Hebrews five from a few weeks back. 
And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So, ouch, right? <laughs> so, but now we finally get into it because he's gone through everything that he needed to say to prepare them for what he's going to talk about regarding Melchizedek. So before we can understand the connection issue, the understand, understand the issue of our desire to be connected to God, we have to learn more about this guy. We're going to kind of take a, a break and enter a kind of like Wikipedia click hole on Melchizedek, all right? We're gonna learn a lot of information that you never thought you needed to know, and it's gonna be great, okay? We're gonna discover who this guy even is and what's so great about him, what has changed because of him, and why it matters for us today. So let's start in Hebrews chapter seven, verse one. It goes, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. What is he talking about? He's bringing up all of these facts like you know exactly where this is going. Salem, priest of the Most High God, slaughter of the kings. Does anybody know what that is? No, exactly. He's bringing this up because his audience knows exactly what Melchizedek is all about. He would have said Melchizedek, and they would be like, oh yeah, right, Melchizedek. We're like, please. Okay, so to understand, we have to go back to the book of Genesis. But, but before we do that, let's recap. So the author has brought to our attention that Jesus is a high priest, and he has done so previously up until this point by quoting from the Psalms, Psalm chapter 110 a psalm that predicted the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, and how he would triumph over his enemies. But within that psalm, there's this bizarre line that the author has already quoted that says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what the author does here in Hebrews 7 is bring up the only other place in the whole Bible where this guy Melchizedek is mentioned besides Psalm 110, and it is Genesis 14. So you can flip there in your Bibles. If you have them, it's also going to be on the screen. Genesis 14. It, so the story that precedes this section is that Abraham has actually gone to war against these four neighboring kingdoms to save his nephew. Aw, right? Tender. Okay, so he saves his nephew from these four kings. He slaughters these other armies, right? And he only does it with 300 guys. So it's pretty like awesome. And as he's finished and as he's kind of recovering, this random guy walks onto the scene and that's where we pick up in Genesis 14. And it says, after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the Valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth 
of everything. So Abraham meets these two kings in the valley of the king, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. And the king of Salem, Melchizedek, blesses him and tells him that God gave him this victory. And that, my friends, is the only story in the Bible that mentions Melchizedek. So why are we talking about it today? What is so important about him? Well, what the author is going to show us this morning is that his significance is due both to what is said about him and also what is not said about him. So he goes on in verse 2. He says, He, Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So, we're seeing actually that his name, Melchizedek, is more of a title than a name. So in order to understand that, you need a little mini Hebrew lesson, which I've put over on the screen for you. Okay, so Malki, it should be there. Malki Tzedek means king of righteousness, okay? So that's his title, is king of righteousness. And Salem is where we get the word shalom, which means peace, Okay, so his name is King of Righteousness, King of Peace, okay? And actually, most scholars are pretty certain that what here is called Salem would later on in biblical history be known as Jerusalem. Okay, so we have this priest who is King of Righteousness and King of Jerusalem, which is starting to sound a little bit more familiar, right? But then... We go on in verse 3, and we read, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And then things just get funky, right? What are we talking about? He doesn't have a mom or a dad. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. Where is he getting that stuff from? We didn't read any of that in Genesis, and that is the only place where it talks about Melchizedek. Is he just making this stuff up? So to understand a little bit of that, we have to go a little bit into Jewish tradition at the time. So in the first century, no one really knows when people started to think of this guy, Melchizedek, as more than just a random guy who shows up in Abraham's life. But most of Jewish tradition today believes that Melchizedek is Noah's son, Shem. Right, from Noah's Ark, okay? So Shem lived a really long time, like 700-something years, and the author, the, the rabbis are kind of calculating and going, oh, 700 years, that kind of equals the time of Abraham, so it must be this guy, so maybe it's that. But there's also more evidence that says that during the time of the first century, actually around the time that the book of Hebrews would have been written, there was a document that describes Melchizedek as this angelic figure, equal with God, who saves God's people from Satan at the end of time. Okay, so some pretty heavy stuff. So it's either Noah's son Shem or a magical angel. Okay, and actually, fun fact, Mormons believe that Melchizedek is this like magical power that you can have that you get prayed over and you get the power of Melchizedek and that's actually how they greet each other sometimes. It's like, are you Melchizedek? And they say, yes, I'm Melchizedek. And you're just supposed to know what that means, okay? So there's a lot of funky stuff floating around about 
this guy. No offense to Mormons, it just, we just don't get it, okay? So you can explain it later if you know Mormons or if you are a Mormon, I would love to hear more about that. But the possibility that these things would have been floating around in the minds of the readers or the first audience of the book of Hebrews is very possible, but it's not necessary to see him as some crazy angelic being, all right? We don't have to think or know any of that stuff about him to get what the author is trying to say here. What the author is emphasizing is that there's this guy who knew God better than Abraham, and he didn't get his priesthood from the family he was born into, which as we'll see in a moment is totally different from how priests were chosen. So the bottom line here is that the author is connecting these concepts of Melchizedek, that he is a priest and we don't know where he comes from, but that he knows God better than Abraham, to what it says in the Psalm about Melchizedek being a priest forever, having an eternal priesthood, which is how he connects it to Jesus, the Son of God. Okay? So that was the little Melchizedek about me section. Okay, for the first audience, again, they just needed a little refresher course and we needed to kind of do a deep dive into who is this guy at all. So if you're visiting with us this morning, I really just, this is not how it normally goes. We don't do a deep dive into people with weird names, okay? But it was important for us to know so that you'll track with the stranger's argument and why it's so crucial to understanding the kind of priest that Jesus is. So now as we move on, we're gonna understand what is so great about this guy, Melchizedek. In verse four, it says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So this is where the author starts a little game of compare and contrast. He's trying to show us that this priest Melchizedek was fundamentally better than the priests that his audience is used to, the Levite priests. But not only were his audience used to a different kind of priests altogether, this familiarity was actually preventing them from seeing that Jesus was the priest that they need. So he's going to prove that it's pointless for people to rely on methods of connection that were never meant to last forever. So he starts this comparison between Melchizedek and Levi. So who is Levi? In, in Hebrew, it's actually pronounced Levi, which is what I named my son. Shout out to the nursery. Okay, he's in there. Levi was one of the names of the 12 tribes or families of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. And all of the priests of Israel came from this one family. They were the one family from the nation of Israel that was authorized to be priests, to work in the temple, to be the bridge builders between the people and God. And again, if you wanna know more, Casey did a great talk on this a few weeks ago, but the purpose of bringing them up here is the principle of tithing. 
of giving a tenth. Now, what is this tithe? We have to understand that Levites were professionals, okay? They didn't do any other form of work. And so this 10%, this tithe of what was earned by the rest of the nation of Israel, this was their livelihood. It was a recognition that these Levites, or more specifically the priests that came from the tribe of Levi, were the basis of how you would have a connection to God. So the way of, of showing them honor and reverence was by giving the tithe to the ones that God had chosen to fill this role. Now, really quickly, a side note on this. There's sometimes a bit of confusion in the church about tithing as a principle and whether New Testament believers are still required to give a tenth of their earnings to God. So really quickly, Jesus' teaching demonstrated that giving to God's work, as Lorenzo said earlier, is not about paying your dues, but it's about stewardship. It's about recognizing that everything that we have belongs to God. And so like we say often at this church, we give to God out of a joyful response based on what he's given to us. So rather than giving to meet some quota from our earnings, as the New Testament teaches, we give generously and cheerfully and sacrificially. So the practice of giving a tithe or 10% is not necessarily a bad one to start out with. It's just not the point of the teaching. What we put our money into is what we most value because it reveals what matters most to us. So anyway, if you are still curious about this whole tithing thing and how it makes sense, we actually did a whole series on money several months ago that I would encourage you to go listen to as well. But the point that's being drawn out here about tithing is that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek all of those years ago. This is significant because it demonstrates that Abraham was showing him honor and reverence. And in fact, this is the only person in Abraham's entire life he meets that has a more significant connection to God than himself. And he recognizes that. That's what it means when it says that the inferior Abraham is blessed by the superior. Because Abraham didn't turn around and go, okay, now it's my turn to bless you. No, he just received the blessing. He receives the blessing from the priest who provided for him a more legitimate connection to God than he had, and whose priesthood never actually ended. But this last little line of reasoning that the stranger gives us is kind of uh, awkward at first. Okay, let's, let's read verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Gross, right? <laughs> yeah. So Levi, Abe's great-grandson, who was not alive at the time of his encounter with Melchizedek, he tithed to Melchizedek. So this is a, actually, before you get too weirded out, this is a very common line of arguing or reasoning in Jewish rabbinic circles. He's demonstrating that something happened on a technicality. Here's the technicality. It's called the principle of corporate solidarity, 
all right? Corporate solidarity. It means that one person, one representative of a group of people can be seen as a stand-in for an entire people group. Today, we call it ambassadorship, right? So Abraham was in that moment a representative of all of the people who would come after him, which is what we learned last week about him, actually. Abraham means father of many. So by saying that, the author saying that Levi was in the loins, awkward, of Abraham, he's saying that if Abraham recognized the superiority of Melchizedek's connection to God, then it's as good as if Levi did as well, way after this original interaction took place. So if you like to think about it this way, Melchizedek is essentially like the hipster of priests, right? He was like a priest way before it was cool, okay? And all of the other priests owe their priesting influence to him, right? No matter what kind of priest you are. So hipster priest, okay? You're welcome. So moving on here, the main idea is that for the author, Melchizedek represents the closest idea to God's original intention for priests, the closest idea for God's intention of what a priest was supposed to be. Not rules or regulations, but a genuine connectedness to God. Good? You guys still with me? Okay, I know this is getting a little confusing, but we are about to get into the real meat of this controversy. So let's read on, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? So quickly, the contrast that he made in the previous verses was between Melchizedek and Levi, and now he's actually zooming in to Aaron. Okay, so the Levites were this priestly family, but Aaron, the high priest, and his descendants were the high priestly order. All of Aaron's sons were the only ones within the tribe of Levi who could become high priest. So he's talking about this specific lineage of high priests. Aaron is, of course, the same Aaron from the book of Exodus, Moses' brother. So only Aaron's direct descendants were allowed to occupy this role. So now he's contrasting the order of Aaron with the order of Melchizedek, which is nothing like the order of the phoenix. So he's talking about the lineage, okay, about Aaron and his descendants. The author's point here is that the possibility of perfection, as he says, never existed as long as Aaron and his descendants were high priest. So we'll see a little bit more about what that means when we uncover what perfection means. He's not talking about moral perfection. That was not expected of him. He's talking about completion or fulfillment, that it achieves God's ultimate goal for what the priesthood was supposed to be. God's goal for priests, his creative intention for them is the same as God's goal and creative intention for all of his people, and that is to be in right relationship to him, to be intimately connected to the eternal creator. It is what we were made for, and it's what the priesthood and the temple and all of the sacrifices that would happen inside of it were only pointing to in an incomplete manner. 
They could never achieve it because something had to change. What changed? Let's see in verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So you have to understand that actually, to these listeners, this would have been so offensive if they didn't understand where he was coming from. Even blasphemous, saying that there is a change in the law to the original Jewish audience, that would have been so offensive if they didn't understand what he was saying. If there is one thing that is not supposed to change, it is the Torah, it is the law. So the priests that connect us to God by doing their job according to the law, so what's wrong with it? Why did it have to change? Why didn't we just stick with the thing that we've got that was working just fine? Have you ever tried to convince a parent or a grandparent that they need some kind of upgrade in technology? I know, I ha is that just me? Like they're still using like an antenna on top of their TV and like wrapping it in tin foil and you come in and they're like standing on a chair like this and you're like oh, you're just trying to watch the World Cup or whatever and you're like, Grandma, I have an Apple TV like in my car. I will go get it for you. And they're like, no, honey, this works just fine. It's great. Am I the only one that's ever had to do that before? So the point is that you might think that you have a connection and that it's working the way it's supposed to, but it's really not. And the irony here is that at this time in the first century, when this audience would have been thinking about, well, what's wrong with the system that we've got? The priesthood in Jerusalem had been corrupt and illegitimate for over a hundred years years. So in other words, there already had been a change in the law because the priests were no longer following the law. There was a new high priest every other year due to either moral failure or political corruption. So actually a Jewish historian who was alive at the time that the temple was still standing wrote about this and he said, the other priests who at a distance saw their law made a jest of, shed tears and sorely lamented the disillusion of such a sacred dignity. So it wasn't working anymore. And what the stranger is saying to us is that as far as connecting to God goes, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Is it doing what God designed it to do? No, then it's faulty. But the big controversy here is about lineage, okay? That's what he said. These people were not ready to accept Jesus and his high priesthood because of the division between the tribes of Levi and the tribe of Judah. And again, another technicality, a legal technicality, because everybody knows that priests come from Levi and kings come from Judah. So, they didn't accept Jesus' priesthood on that basis. But saying that you don't accept Jesus' priesthood because he's not from Levi and he's from Judah is kind of like when the new iPhone came out, right? And 
you know, for the very first time, the iPhone came out. This is turning into like an Apple ad or something. But like, the iPhone came out and everyone was like, what? And you go over to your grandparents' house and they're like, what's that? They're like, it's my phone, grandpa. And he's like, that's not a phone. And you're like, yeah, it does. It calls people, right? So if it doesn't look like a phone, but it still calls people, it's a phone, right? It quacks like a duck. So anyway, what he's trying to say is that Jesus' priesthood seems to break the rules, but it accomplishes the very purpose that God set out to do with the priesthood. And he says more about that in verse 15. He says, This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the author is trying to show us that the legitimacy of Jesus' connection to God cannot be disputed because like Melchizedek's priesthood, he is eternal. He is God's son. And this transcends the qualifications of this provisional, temporary Levite system. So in other words, the basis of being qualified because of who your family is and what family you belong to has been done away with. Jesus' indestructible life, his eternality, means that he will connect people to God in a way that can never be interrupted by a change in the priesthood, by a change in us. And it's ironically the very aspect of Jesus that he was from the tribe of Judah that may have disqualified him in their minds that he's not from Levi is actually the thing that makes him better like Melchizedek, he is a priest who is also king. So what he's trying to show them, the, the question that the author has been pushing his audience toward this entire time is the same one that's being posed to us today. And it is this. Are you willing to be connected to God to fulfill the purpose that you were created for if it happens in a way that you didn't expect, in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable? or maybe that seems to break all of the rules. So now we're coming to why any of this matters for us. Why is Melchizedek so important? But before we get there, we need to understand one more piece of historical information, okay? Scholars are convinced that at the time that the book of Hebrews was written, the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God dwelled, where the priests would work, was either under attack or it was completely destroyed. Which means that this first audience of the book of Hebrews would have been freaking out that there was no longer any way for them to connect to God. No more priesthood. The only thing, they could only be confident that God was forgiving their sins if the priests were continually offering sacrifices in the temple day after day year after year, sacrifices for sin. This animal taking my place, this animal dying for my sin. But this was not happening anymore. And they could no longer place their confidence in this system. So why were they still wanting it? Let's read verse 18. 
For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is what the author is getting at. When it comes down to it, we don't want to be told that there's anything wrong with our connection. We don't want to have to set anything aside. Whether you have a desire to connect to God or not, it is in the story of Jesus that we are confronted in this self-sufficiency. Because only Jesus did something that we could not. Because Jesus deals with the disconnect that is separating us from God, our sin, what inherently separates us from him. He deals with it in a way that the Levite priests never could and in a way that most modern people don't think that they need. He is both our high priest and our sacrifice. He died a horrible death on the cross in our place as an innocent victim. And when it looked like spiritual evil was victorious and the devil thought he was winning on a technicality, he was being defeated by the power of God. And this was captured so beautifully and so poetically by C.S. Lewis, as only he can, in book one of the Narnia series. And in this scene, Aslan, the lion, has just been killed by the wicked witch, and he is miraculously raised to life, and now he's explaining and comforting his friends based on what happened. It says, but what does it all mean? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that what a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. That is the very same hope that we are talking about here, friends. When Jesus rose from the dead, death started working in reverse. Jesus's priesthood is experientially better because it brings this kind of hope, a hope that is victorious over death, that one day we will no longer need God's presence to be mediated to us because we will be with him forever. But first, something must be set aside. To desire an obsolete method of connecting to God is to invalidate the person, the work, and the words of Jesus. Because we don't want a mediator. We don't think we need a priest to connect us to God. We want to connect on our own terms, right? Why? Perhaps because it's more familiar or more comfortable to do it our way. Because we get to remain in control. Because it's hard for us to trust anyone besides ourselves. Or maybe all of this just sounds too good to be true. So what this morning needs to be set aside for us to experience this? What do we need to set aside? If you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, there's something occupying, occupying this place in your soul that was only meant to be filled by the creator, by connecting to him. 
Is it a relationship that you're using to plug up a void of not feeling loved or maybe being able to prove to others and to yourself that you're actually a good person? Or for Christians maybe, what, what methods are we trying to use to connect to God on our own terms? Are we trying to compensate for something from a lack of feeling loved by God and genuine joy in our lives by trying to manufacture an experience with God or maybe doing religious things that we believe would force God's hand to bless us. The early uh, church father, Augustine, has some words for both of us. He says, all things are precious because all are beautiful, but what is more beautiful than he? If you seek for anything better, you will do wrong to him and harm to yourself by preferring to him that which he made when he would willingly give himself to you. What are we settling for? That was the case for the original audience of Hebrews with the weakness and the uselessness of the law to connect them to God. But there was nothing wrong with it inherently, but that it was merely provisional. It was not bringing us what we were meant for, which is heavenly union with God. What was earthly had to be set aside for the heavenly. And what is mortal had to be set aside for immortality. And what is temporal has to be set aside for the eternal. And what was merely a shadow had to be set aside for the true reality, the real thing. All of the things that God has created for us to enjoy are supposed to leave us wanting more, not being satisfied with what only hints at that which we truly desire in the deepest part of our souls, to be connected to the source of all love and truth and power, that hope. Because our creator who made us and knows what satisfies us, he knows what satisfies us and what doesn't. He knows that we will only be satisfied in deep connection to him. And he knows that that can only happen through our high priest, Jesus. So now we have an opportunity to draw near, to access the hope that comes through the priestly mediation of Jesus. We must set aside the things that we cling to that bring a false sense of security and step into the hope that we have in Jesus whose body bridged the gap that separated us from reaching and experiencing God in his presence. Because being with God is the authentic connectedness that our souls crave. The presence of God is the only thing that will satisfy us. And we have that access because of Jesus. Let's pray together.